Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivry. I'm your host. Today, One Family's Odyssey from Shtetl and Sound Mind. Roger Cohen has been with the New York Times for a long time as a foreign correspondent and now as a columnist. He's covered wars, the economy, and political upheaval. In a new memoir, he looks inward at his own family's itinerancy and mental unrest. Before we get to that conversation, though, we're trying something new on Vox Tablet. We're going to start each podcast with a quick chat or dispatch or rant, whatever you want to call it. We're still trying to figure out what the name of this segment is going to be, maybe something like Hold It Just a Second. So if you have a great idea for a name, email it to us at podcast at tabletmag.com. Meantime, here's our first go. Daniel Estrin is a journalist based in Jerusalem. He reports for Public Radio, the AP, and yes, for Vox Tablet, too. This past summer, he covered the war in Gaza. Shortly after that, during what was supposed to be a vacation at home in St. Louis, he ended up covering the protests in Ferguson. Now he's just back from another hot zone, Paris, France. Daniel spent the past week talking to a wide swath of French people with some sort of stake in religious identity there, from rabbis and Muslim bloggers to a woman, an atheist, whose daughter has converted to Judaism. We asked Daniel to give us a call when he got back to Israel. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Sarah. What was your assignment in heading to Paris? Were there particular stories you wanted to find out? Well, my assignment came at about 8 p.m. on um a Thursday evening after I had bought a challah and uh, chocolate chip cookie ingredients for the weekend. Uh-huh. And uh, in other words, it was it was a very last minute assignment. And um, I was at the airport um, by noon the next day. And uh, I was interested in looking at religion in France. And that was also what my editor at uh, PRI's The World was interested in me looking at. Um, you know, why were French people so adamant about poking fun of the Prophet Muhammad in a satire newspaper? Why were people killing people over that? Why was a French national gunning down people in a kosher supermarket? You know, basically, what the heck was happening to this beloved romantic city of Paris? Once you were on the ground in France, what were some of your impressions, the sorts of things you'd write home about? Well, I arrived late Friday, and... um the first thing I did the next morning on Saturday morning was I, I headed to the Great Synagogue because uh, I was really curious to hear what the rabbi was going to say in his sermon to the congregation after this disaster that had taken place the day before. Um, and that Great Synagogue had been closed for prayers uh, on Friday for the first time uh, since World War II. So I arrived at the synagogue. Um, I showed up carrying a small bag over my shoulder there were three police officers standing in front of the synagogue and two private plainclothes security guards. I said, I'm a journalist and I want to, to hear what the rabbi has to say and I want to attend prayers. And immediately the, the police officers very got very fidgety and, and asked me to empty my bag immediately. One of them took me to his police car and, and radioed in my passport name and number and you know, in the end, the police officer said, "No, you can't gain access into the synagogue. We're we're only letting in familiar faces from the from the congregation." So I eventually ended up stumbling onto a, another synagogue that didn't have a, a guard in front. I just I, I saw some Hebrew writing in the window. There was nothing, no sign saying it was a synagogue. It just looked like a storefront. And I walked in and. Um, I, I grabbed the tallis and I sat down in one of the pews and I just missed the rabbi's sermon, um, <laughs> but I, I spoke to the rabbi afterwards and he told me the sermon that he gave, which I thought was really beautiful. He said, 
that he had no idea what he was going to say to his congregants the day after such an atrocious attack. And so he looked to the, the week's Torah portion and found the story of the burning bush. And his message to the congregation was, just as the burning bush was not consumed, there is this fire happening all around us, but we, the Jewish people, and by extension, the Jews of France, we will not be consumed. Here in the States, a lot of the reporting on French Jews in the past week or so seems to home in on one question, should they stay or should they go? And the going is, of course, to Israel. Based on your time in Paris recently, would you say that that's the main question on the minds of most French Jews? Well, I spoke to a number of people um, at that synagogue I went to on Saturday who said, yes, it's time to leave for Israel. I also spoke to a number of Jews who said, no, we're going to be defiant. We're staying here. Um, one leader at the at the Reform congregation told me he was going to be the last Jew to turn off the light in France if he had to be. So people seem to be squarely in one camp or the other. Um, what I did hear in conversations with people was more of a, of a confusion and a feeling of, you know, what has happened to France? And one Jewish woman told me, I don't think I will leave France, but I feel that France has left me. Wow, that's very sad. You know, you're based in Jerusalem, and you spend most of your time covering the politics of the region. Do you think that helped you in some way in trying to understand the experience of Jews and Muslims in France? Or did you find yourself sometimes having to kind of reset your assumptions? I think a little bit of both. Um, you know, when, when I realized that France is uh, the one country after Israel that has the most Jews and Arabs or Jews and Muslims living side by side, um, that really brings things into perspective. The, the, the fears and the, um, the variety of, of types of Jews and types of Muslims and, and their different opinions and their different uh, levels of observance. So I think in trying to understand, you know, when I, when I came to Paris, I was just asking myself, why is all this happening in France? And, and to understand the numbers, um, the population numbers really helped me realize why we see so much tension there. Um, you know, you asked about uh, resetting some of my assumptions. Yes, I, I came to France assuming that the people were very strongly uh, a part of a community, that Jews were in a very strong Jewish community, that Muslims would talk about what they felt in their Muslim community. And whenever I would bring up that word community, it was like it was a, it was a dirty word. I mean, people in France told me, verbatim, there are no communities in France, which was something that was really hard for me to wrap my head around. But um, what does it mean? Yeah, people meant by that, that, that um, we might uh, all go to a certain mosque or a certain synagogue, but we do not identify ourselves as living in some kind of separate religious community. And um, I learned that that was something that is something that's very key to, to the French Republic ideals of, of, equality and fraternity and and all those, you know, liberté, égalité, fraternité, that you have to somehow become part of the greater French public. I mean, I think one thing that really struck me was that on there was a, a sort of million-man march, or there, there are more than a million people at this huge unity rally um, after the attacks. The Jewish community did not organize its own come meet at this certain place and we're all going to march under this banner. They didn't even organize their own major rally. 
um, after this horrific attack at the kosher supermarket. I think if these events would have happened in America, you would have seen the Jewish community um, organizing rallies across the country um, under that banner of, of, you know, we are proud Jews and, and fighting against anti-Semitism. No, here uh, the notion was we're not going to, in a way, separate ourselves from this uh, national moment. And, and, uh, and yes, we as Jews were attacked at that kosher supermarket, but we at this moment are French people and, and we're not going to march separately or under a separate banner at, at the rally. Daniel Estrin, thank you so much for speaking with us. We hope you get a little bit of downtime in Jerusalem. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Now then, when Roger Cohen was just three years old in 1958, his mother suddenly disappeared for several months. Years later, he would learn that she had been sent to a psychiatric institution and had undergone electroshock treatment. June Cohen had grown up in Johannesburg and had moved with Roger's father, Sidney, to England just a couple of years before Roger's birth. June and Sidney's families were themselves immigrants to South Africa. They had come from Lithuania at a time when Eastern Europe was increasingly hostile to Jews. All this dislocation, Cohen believes, may have contributed to his mother's condition, manic depression, along with what he suspects was a genetic predisposition. What, he wonders, was the connection between his family's itinerancy and their depression? What part did the dark shadow of violence play, violence against Jews in the Pale of Settlement or against blacks in South Africa? These are some of the questions Roger Cohen examines in his new book, The Girl from Human Street. He joins us today in the studio to talk about it. Welcome, Roger Cohen, to Vox Tablet. Thank you, Sarah. Tell us a little bit about your mother. Well, my mother was a very bright, vivacious, uh, petite uh, young woman, and um, she was lifted out of a cocoon of South African wealth that had been born almost overnight. Her grandfather was an immigrant from Lithuania, uh, was a traveling salesman, and then ended up founding one of the biggest department stores in South Africa. So she'd grown up in this very tight-knit Jewish community in Johannesburg and met my dad. They were married in 1950, and um, he was a young doctor. And they went to England. Um, uh, I was born in 1955 and then back to South Africa. And then they came back to England. They emigrated. My, they did not like apartheid. Um, and my father had glimpsed greater opportunities on British shores. And my mother then collapsed. Um, she broke down after the birth of my sister and disappeared from my life for some years. And one reason I was haunted by that past is that I didn't really know what had happened And I felt that I had to explore that and was able, finally, to establish where my mother went. Uh, She went to somewhere called the Holloway Institution, a psychiatric hospital. And I now know that, for example, she had electroshock treatment on July 30, 1958, and again on August 1, which was one day before my third birthday. Uh, So the book... um, it's a it's a family exploration, exploration within one family, but it's a much broader exploration too. And uh, I do believe, as you mentioned, Sarah, that this repetitive uh, history, familiar to many Jewish families and and, and many non-Jewish families, uh, of displacement, of beginning again, of burying the past, 
um, that this was one of the factors that contributed to my mother's breakdown. It was the transplant did not take. In your book, in The Girl from Human Street, you have these very frank, imagined conversations with June. I wonder, did you ever have frank conversations with her in real life, not necessarily about her breakdown, but just about the disappointments uh, that might have amassed over a lifetime and the sense of moving from here to there and being an immigrant in many ways? Well, I think the reason I imagine them is in part because I didn't have them or did not have them uh, sufficiently. Um, Manic depression is, I describe mental illness as a channel house uh, in the book from which no family escapes. Uh, Manic depression is particularly hard to deal with um, because there are two presentations of the of the personality. Um, my mother, when she was up, when she was manic, was um, buying, selling, arranging vacations, sometimes aggressive, um, super active. And it was quite hard to speak to her then because she was moving at such speed. And then when she was in the depressive phase, she was pretty inert. And also, it's 15 years since her death. Um, and five years after she died, I – this is the box in the attic story. I i found a box in the attic of a house in Wales that my parents owned. We, we still own the house. It's in a very remote, a very beautiful part of central Wales. The sun never shines. It's always windy. Anyway, I was there. Well, I don't go there very often, but I for some reason went up in the attic and I saw this box and I opened it. And um, there were my mother's suicide notes from her two suicide attempts. And my dad's a doctor and he had chronicled in very precise detail during the years of greatest anguish um, when my mother had been up, when she'd been down, what medication she was on, why the medication was changed. There were also letters from my mother to him about her determination to overcome the condition or her... Um, determination never to try suicide again. But death was always the cajoling voice in her ear, I think. In any event, when I, when I found that, I began to think very much of what had lain hidden in our family for a long time. And also, and that was the sort of intimate family picture. And then the broader picture was one of what had lain hidden in our past. I didn't know that my grandparents were from Lithuania until quite late in my life. We didn't hide who we were. We were Cohens. Everybody knows that the Cohens are Jewish. But I didn't really have a Jewish upbringing of any kind. And I began thinking about how this buried, broader past related to the anguished and partly buried to... Um, intimate past of my family. And what I've tried to do in the book is, um, in The Girl from Human Street, is is connect all that. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, this book covers a lot of ground. You yeah. talk about the Holocaust. You talk about the reach of mental illness among your extended family. You talk really about the Jewish diasporic experience. You talk about the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And you talk about the community in South Africa. In some ways, it's the last topic, South Africa and the Jews there. That's the one that I know the least about and probably many of our listeners know the least about. So I wanted to get a little bit into that, the extent to which the Jews helped establish Johannesburg and create a community there, not just a Jewish community but a city. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, 
Um, there was an extraordinary emigration from Lithuania to South Africa, concentrated between about 1884 and the outbreak of World War I in 1914. It continued to some degree after, but there was a huge exodus and up to 90% of South African Jews are descended from, from Lithuanian Jews. Um, at its height, uh, the community numbered about 120,000 in South Africa. It's now down to about 80,000. Um, many left before the end of apartheid. Many foresaw a cataclysm when apartheid ended. That, thanks to Mandela and de Klerk, did not happen. But many have left for Australia, California, and elsewhere. And um, at its foundation um, in in the 1880s, you know, it was a story of getting out of the pale of settlement. Uh, there was the diamond industry that was nascent. Then this incredible discovery of gold at Johannesburg and in the reef running from Johannesburg east and west. And um, in fact, Johannesburg in its early years was sometimes referred to as Jewburg mm. because um, there was a, a very substantial um, Jewish community drawn to new opportunity um, in South Africa. And the Jews were on the right side of the color line even before apartheid. Um, the, the gold mining industry was based very largely on black labor. So uh, as some of my relatives used to say sometimes rather crudely, you know, if you're busy persecuting as apartheid did uh, millions of blacks, you don't have much time left over for tens of thousands of Jews. And proportionately, there were more Jews uh, who fought against apartheid in the white community than any other single community. Uh, many Jews went to jail for their part in the struggle against apartheid. But the official Jewish community in South Africa went along. Most people in my family uh, went along. You know, as in most such situations, um, people people tend to go along. Those who stand up and resist evil and possibly pay a heavy personal price for that they, they tend to be the exception. When you visited South Africa as a child, what presence did blacks have in your experience there? Well, uh, one of the curiosities of apartheid was that the blacks were far away. They couldn't live uh, among whites. Um, their families were out there at the horizon. And uh, it was always this faint and far away menace and there would be comments like enjoy the swimming pools next year they'll be red with blood and that kind of entered my consciousness quite early but as I was saying a, a particularity of apartheid was that blacks were banished except in the most intimate of settings which was the home so all the domestic help um, whether in the kitchen uh, or as nannies were blacks so um that was my experience um, as an infant. And uh, I do remember, and I related in the book, um, my grandfather had this small but uh, rather beautiful house in uh, Musenberg near Cape Town and looked out toward the Cape of Good Hope, just beautiful, glittering view. And um, I remember this nanny taking me out and and placing me on this, there was a railway line that ran in front of the house and then behind it the rocks and then the sea. And she placed me on the wall there on the parapet. And uh, it, in my child's memory, it was 
you know, a hundred foot chasm. I went back and looked at it when I was researching the book. It's about five feet. But somehow she conveyed to me, you know, that she you wouldn't want me to drop you, would you? And Oh my god, that's it terrifying. Was, yeah, it was it, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it it was a rather terrifying memory, but you know, then there are very warm memories as well of, uh, you know, of, of the black presence in the home. But then also this sense of what is actually going on here? What, what, why, why are their utensils set apart from the others? Why can't they eat off the same plates? Why are they living in these concrete outhouses <clears throat> with a single baleful window? Um, how come I sat on the wrong bench um, or wandered into the wrong place. You see, I wasn't, I did live there between the ages of three months and two, but uh, nearly two, but then I didn't live there, but I went there every year. And and so I absorbed uh, the racism, the apartheid um, in, uh, it, it entered me not directly through my conscious mind. It, it, it was a feeling. That's how I absorbed it. Um, and it troubled me. Um, and then when I became politically conscious in my teens, I, I refused to go for a while. And But I've always loved South Africa deeply, uh, the colors, the smells, the, the sea. Uh, and as I said earlier, it was, it was my mother's natural habitat. Um, cold, windy Wales was not. What do you consider to be home? New York now. Um, yeah, I became an American citizen 10 years ago, and New York is home. Um, something didn't quite take for me in, in Britain either. I used to think, uh, when people asked me why I left, I used to say, well, I got offered a job overseas, and one thing led to another. And But part of the understanding I reached through the writing of the book was I had to leave uh, the locus of the trauma, which was, which was London. And then I also... Um, as a Jew in England, um, and I came to consciousness of that really by being called an effing yid in, in school. Um, as a Jew in England, I never felt quite comfortable. And I was talking about this with a, um, somebody who was at schoolmate, James Lasden, uh, who's another English Jew who's moved to America. And we, we both shared this this sort of oh my god moment in arriving in new york you know you can live your jewishness in a different more open much more relaxed exuberant way and you know philip roth refers to how voices always drop a little in britain when jews are referred to and and my mother's used to she, i remember there's a scene in the book of sitting in a restaurant and she points to a family over in the corner and says, well, you know, darling, they're Jewish. And I said, Mom, why are you whispering? And she said, I'm not whispering. But it, it, it's a, an almost subconscious thing, I think, um, in Britain. Given uh, the events in France earlier this month with the attack on the kosher supermarket, what is your take on uh, the confidence of Jews to be Jews elsewhere in Europe, in France, for instance? Well, Sarah, it's a very troubling moment. I think Europe is very combustible right now. This combination of large Muslim communities, large Jewish communities, the spillover of Gaza wars, Middle Eastern politics into Europe, um, underlying weak economies, high unemployment, uh, right-wing parties 
doing well. And what happened in France was I've been – I was so furious and so upset. Um, calmed down a little bit now. But you know, 120 years from the Dreyfus Affair, uh, just three years from the killing of three Jewish children, a rabbi in southern France – um, this attack uh, on the kosher supermarket, four more dead Jews. And at the same time, again, this this virulent uh, ideology that draws its inspiration from its interpretation of Islam and is a murderous uh, ideology that is – I'm a journalist. I can imagine sitting around a table at, at, at the news meeting and talking about what's going to be in the magazine or the paper. I've done it. I was foreign editor. And then – some black-clad guys appear and uh, and mow you all down, kill you, slaughter you all um, because they can't accept freedom of expression and they can't accept that in Western societies freedom of expression extends to blasphemy. Uh, it's an outrage and it's th- this combination uh, is deeply disturbing. So I'm worried – uh, I think if there was another bad incident, um, I, I, you know, I think the, the consequences are unpredictable. Jews are leaving France. Um, it's not a massive exodus. Uh, it's, it's still a very large community in France. I think it would take something else to, to increase that flow to something you know, really substantial. But yeah, it, it's – it is absolutely abhorrent what has been happening and, you know, it's interesting for me because I grew up in England, now I'm an American, um, I write here and I'm a strong supporter of two-state solution so I tend to be criticized here on this side of the Atlantic more for, I mean, some American Jews and Jewish organizations believe that any criticism of Israel is unhelpful because it plays into the hands of Israel's enemies. I, I don't take that view. I think that um, Jews were strangers in strange lands for millennia and uh, uh, to have another stateless people next to um, the Jewish state is not the best outcome in my view and can be very corrosive. So I'm, I'm a strong believer in, in a two-state outcome. Uh, but in Europe, by contrast, I tend to be criticized from the other side for being a Zionist, um, for believing strongly in the need for a Jewish homeland. And Zionism has become a dirty word in Europe. One of the points that you make in your book, which very much speaks to this question of what's happening with French Jews potentially leaving now, is the idea that this uh, history of moving from country to country, from state to state, uh, creates a kind of uh, collective trauma that you're always uprooted and you're, you have no home or mm. you're always searching for home. And then that kind of uh, coincides with mental illness. What is the sort of scientific uh, data or research that kind of supports this idea that these two factors can create a collective trauma or a personal trauma? Well, it's an evolving field um, uh, known as epigenetics. Um, and it's and it's it's not proven. I can't prove uh, that my mother would not have had a breakdown if she'd stayed in South Africa. But my observation of her life and of the way she did not adapt to England and returned to South Africa more and more at the end of her life um, uh, demonstrated to me that there is a link between uh, these these two things. And we know. 
Um, for example, with Holocaust survivors, my ex-wife, uh, Frida, um, her family, when we were based in Berlin, we explored this quite deeply in Poland. Uh, her mother was a Holocaust survivor um, from the Krakow area in southern Poland, and her grandmother had been killed in the camps. And there's no question that the anxiety uh, in in her mother had had passed into Frida, that this this having everything torn apart, having home disappear, um, everything um, uprooted and changed from one minute to the next. You don't recover from that, and 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 it get however hard you try, uh, it gets passed along. There's a fascinating new book about to come out here. If I can give a plug for another book uh, by a Swedish Jew named Goran Rosenberg called uh, "A Brief Stop on the Road from Auschwitz," and it's about his father, a survivor who arrives by chance in Sweden and everything seems to be going fine. You know, he, he's starting a new life and then it all falls apart because he's broken inside and, and that is passed down. Um, my immediate family skirted the, the, the horror of, of the Holocaust. They came from the pogroms uh, of the shtetl. But uh, epigenetics posits the idea and there's growing evidence of it that that kind of abrupt, trauma of beginning again, of, of, of leaving, of losing your roots, of trying to forget, of trying to overcome the past, that this can uh, translate over time into uh, genetic change that can um, prompt mental illness or other conditions. There's no question in my own family that bipolarity, manic depression has been recurrent uh, in many instances, a um, cousin of mine, and I tell her story in the book, uh, committed, was bipolar, committed suicide at the age of 28 um, in Tel Aviv. My uh, mother's uncle uh, was bipolar, had electroshock treatment. In the box I mentioned in the attic, uh, there's a family tree. I found a family tree that my father, obviously in a desperate moment, had put together, and he put black dots next to every family member who had who had suffered from manic depression. And there were more family members with black dots than without. So look, Sarah, there's no there's no proof. Uh, there's no scientific proof. It's an evolving field. I'm sure it will continue to evolve. But there is there is strong evidence. And that is an idea that is that is very much um, um, at the center of the girl from Human Street. Home is something fundamental, I think, to, uh, to all of us. And when you lose that or it's shattered, um, I think filling that void can be a lifelong challenge. Roger Cohen, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, sir. Roger Cohen is the author of The Girl from Human Street, Ghosts of Memory in a Jewish Family. It's out from Knopf. I encourage you to get it. Listeners, we want your comments. We want your input. So tell us what you would like us to talk about on Vox Tablet. We're always interested in your ideas. If you want more of something, less of something, let us know. Write us at podcast at tabletmag.com. Be sure to subscribe to Vox Tablet on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. We thank you for joining us. Thank you.